We're back with a new season. Uh, 14. Season 14, yep. And as awesome as podcasting is. This how many season. how many network shows have made it that long? Like now we got to be getting into rarefied territory. I mean, we beat Mash. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Obviously, we'll never catch The Simpsons, probably. But. No, even no. beat Cheers. Cheers is only eleven seasons. Yeah. All right, Kings. Yeah, that's us. Um, we made almost as much money as Cheers too. <laughs> <laughs> this this isn't work though. Podcasting isn't work. But what we're talking about this season is how work. Sucks. It sucks so bad, man. (laughs) (laughs) Why do we have to do it? (laughs) And uh, we're starting it out with uh, the movie Blue Collar, which you, if you haven't heard of, you are in for a treat. We are uh, the Schrader heads. We're gonna. Yeah, you gotta get Schrader heads. Like this is what a what a time. (laughs) Right. So we'll we'll dive in. We'll dive into Schrader. We're gonna talk about the stars of the uh, of this movie, including Harvey Keitel and Richard Pryor. We're going to talk about unions, corruption. We're going to talk about one-income families. And obviously, any new season, we have to have a new set of stories. Of course, we got to share our work sucks stories. Work sucks. Shh. I know. Listeners, welcome to a brand new episode of the free podcast we are the midnight boys i am your co-host rob and joined as always by my thick as thieves friends joe and duff there's power in a union uh, and hey, we are th- this movie it's about three dudes like us right mm-hmm. just like us um and uh we're we're talking about blue collar which is a uh 1978 uh movie by paul schrader which I'm going to be honest, Joe. Joe, Joe is uh, the the uh, the helmsman crafting the season. Um, yeah. I did not know anything about this movie. It, it's really like this was. This is an interesting one because it comes out in what 78? 78. Right? Yep. So this is right at the tail end of that new Hollywood era, but it hadn't really died yet. But I mean, arguably, was, I feel like this is the like this is kind of like the last gasp of New Hollywood in my in my mind. A a so it's coming it. out at maybe the only time in in film history where a movie like this could have been successful, and it it was critically adored when it came out, mm-hmm. but still, uh, as studios are wont to do, the marketing campaign absolutely nightmarishly bad for this movie and yeah. uh, it did not do well at all because it was just obviously with a, a star like Richard Pryor in the late 70s you're pitching this as a, a comedy and it does have some genuinely very funny moments right but this is not a comedy it's wild that this was a movie made by a major studio like, this was a universal pictures movie mm-hmm. <laughs> like that comes out and except for Richard Pryor doesn't really have any bankable stars. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, you're right. Yeah. I don't think Harvey I mean, Keitel's Harvey Keitel would, would have been known at the time, but he certainly can't carry a movie. No, right. he's, I mean, in 1978, he's not, you know, he's not a marquee name. He's not packing a man. I mean, I don't know if he ever was quite honestly. No, I, I mean, yeah, no, I don't know, but, but just always a guy that you're happy when he shows up on the screen but like, yeah, your casual moviegoer is mostly also, gonna react. Do you like, think oh, Harvey Keitel? Guy. This movie, once again, you think he's like, you know, they're going through the script and you know, going through like how they're gonna shoot it. You think he's like, listen, 
one thing I really would like. Can we make sure I'm in my underwear? Can we get a junk shot in there? Yeah. There... Dude, <laughs> like, he wanted to get naked, and Paul Schrader probably was fine with it. But this, I'm sure Universal was like, no way. Absolutely not. So the compromise was that he was just going to get into bed with briefs on. Right. Yeah. Yep. And you know what? So I, I, I watched this with my, my lovely bride when I first saw this. And I we often have arguments about whether someone's good looking or whether someone's a hunk or not. And I, I, I just felt it. I felt my hand going to the holster ready to just deliver the Harvey Keitel's a hunk argument, even though I don't actually believe it, but just to embrace debate. Yeah. I didn't have it in me. I was just like, I'm not I'm not going there. But he is oddly compelling physically. Like he's yeah. a he's a strong, like masculine presence. Like I would say like uniquely so. I mean, I love Harvey Keitel. I, th- I, th- I think I would refer to it as uh, he has a magnetism about him. Yeah. And, like, you cannot stop looking at Harvey Keitel, and you don't know what it is. It's because he can't stop looking at you, weirdly enough. Like, I feel <laughs> yeah. like that's part of the Harvey Keitel thing it, is, why are you I, looking at me, of, Harvey? Part of it is because we've been trained to know that at any minute, his hog could come out. <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. Whereas, like, in 1978, if you're watching this movie, you wouldn't have known right. about his, like, his proclivity of hog reveals. Yeah. But, but like now with the benefit of like millennial hindsight, we know that hog's coming out. Yeah. When he's going to drop the peen anno. <laughs> oh. oh, that's not great. That's not a good one from you, Rob. That's not great. I'm keeping it. Well, I know you are, but <laughs> I mean, I'm going to keep it too if I had it, but just not great. Just want to, I, I feel like I used to just get mad at you all the time about your terrible puns. And yeah. the people loved it. And I've been derelict in my duty. So I'm, even though it is work and work sucks, I'm <laughs> coming back and I'm doing the work for the people. So you're, Rob, right, that so, wasn't funny. All right. What about his reservoir hog? <laughs> Man, reser- God damn it. Reservoir dong funny. was right there. <laughs> I like reservoir hog better. Okay. Let's, enough of Harvey Keitel. Um, uh, for now. For now. Um, all right, so let's let's let Joe before we before we get too far into this. What are oh, we yeah. doing this season? Work sucks, man. Dude, tell us. Okay, what are we so doing? if I, I feel like we're really living well, I mean, like any kind of like moment in American history where like things could really change, we're always going to like walk up to like that crest of the wave, but that wave is never going to quite break because the powers aligned. Just I, I don't want to sound hopeless or nihilistic, but. The powers aligned against us are so strong. So you think about like 2020, just un, un, unprecedented protests against police violence mm-hmm. and and systemic racism, and like both parties, I and think. And look how everything changed. Yeah, I, I, we I did don't it. like we 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 lived in sort of like this managed democracy where like I don't really think either party is is all that interested in changing anything. I I don't even think that's arguable. In that sense, and I mean and the average the, the, the average age is like seventy. Yeah, they, they they literally don't remember what they had for breakfast. So like they're certainly not too old. up to the task. Too, too old, old to, to be doing the training. Too old to begin the training. And uh, so then the pandemic happens, and it, it really starts to make people question our 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 American standards of of the work week, where we work, and and obviously what I'm. The, the whole remote thing is largely like a middle to upper middle class concern yes. because like the working class, they don't have jobs where you can just log on to zoom calls, uh, you know, for 
you know, four different times for a half hour and then like take a nap and then masturbate or whatever. <laughs> Whereas like the working class, like they never, nothing really changed for them or people in the service industry, if, if they were even able to continue working. But it really, I think genuinely made a, a sizable chunk of the population realize work sucks <laughs> and I'm not paid enough for, for this sucky work that I have to do. Mm-hmm. It just and, gave everyone a case of YOLO and made them realize, made them think, what am I doing? Like, what is this for? Right. Yeah. And I I think it's like a, a really fascinating and, and powerful potential like turning point. And, and I do think like some things, tiny, maybe not all that significant things have changed. But, but again, largely with like sort of the office work class who are living i won't say comfortable lives because they're also probably saddled with student debt and you know unaffordable rising rent prices but you know not not the guys that were are the subjects of this movie but what i thought is like if not if not now when to do I mean, a season it allowed, about how much work sucks. My my cynical view is that it has allowed the people who actually have some power to actually be mad now too. And realize how much work sucks. Yeah, and and just about like like what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? That like, re- that and, really and just, is and, the question. Like we're so much effort and so much time uselessly put into things that provide no material benefit to ourselves. Well, I mean, I don't want to start sounding like Karl Marx here, but just just I th- I think it, it's it's a it's a really fascinating moment where, where for the first time in our lifetimes, for sure, people are really questioning their bosses, questioning management, and really realizing the myriad ways workers are abused in this country from a variety of different angles. And and, and for our generation, sort of that 21st century, like, hey, we got a foosball table in the office. Oh. Uh, <laughs> like, it's been so... You can wear your pajamas to work. If yeah, you oh, like. no dress it's, it's dog oh. day! It's Free dog food day. in the kitchen. Yeah, dogs, bring them in. Free food in the kitchen. And all this stuff is to make you just not want to go, like, to, to, to make you slightly less desperate to go home. Right, yeah. and, and then the things that workers, what well, companies don't do, which would be useful, would be like free childcare. Yeah, mm-hmm. that would be useful, and people would be like, oh, that's. So I, I wanted to do a season about the different with some different angles about how work sucks. So today, I, I really thought of this movie would be a fascinating way to start because they do not make movies about characters like this ever. It's certainly not. In, in my opinion, I don't know how you guys felt about this movie. I thought this was a genuinely authentic look at working class life uh, in, in the, the twilight of the manufacturing age in the American economy. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I mean, not it's that. It's also like Rust Belt. Like, this is a glimpse into, like, living in a Rust Belt city, which also isn't necessarily seen that much in. No, no in movies especially like non-documentary movies like we've seen workers in documentaries but you don't see it you know uh richard Pryor and harvey keitel playing those people the flip side is that when you do see it nowadays it it's kind of misery porn and it's very sentimental right Um, and i would say it's you know it's not it's not a movie about working yet it's about 
the economy is uh, Nomad Land. Sure. And which yeah, is I a didn't movie, see that. It looked like a Which is a movie that, that um, I think everyone has forgotten about already. Yeah. Right. It's and it's there's just movies like that where it's you know it's just designed you know it's kind of like oh let's put this character through as much awfulness as we can and make the audience feel bad for them and then the rest of us is kind of meh whereas this is a movie like like these are real dudes they're kind of dumb actually very dumb at times. yeah but but so are we no right? that's what I, that's what i'm saying like yeah. these are like they're at times incredibly likable uh at times incredibly dumb well let's they're, let's, they're let's, real let's, complex people let's yeah. let's kind of do a quick plot synopsis of movie so you know if you if you haven't seen blue collar you should go see it um all right so we're following uh, as we mentioned three characters who work in a they're michigan auto workers in detroit um we've got uh and i think this is worth mentioning because it would be pretty rare in a movie at this point we have two black main characters and one white main character mm-hmm. rather than the other way around so uh, maybe this is the right time to, to did you guys read uh yafet koto's uh, just like interview about uh, where he kind of talked about how he approached this role. Is it and, where he and, said he played it like an Italian American? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, so he's like, well, I saw Richard Pryor playing this as sort of like an ethnic black character, and it didn't seem like it would work if we had two characters like that. So he's like, I'm just gonna be play it like I'm an Italian dude, where I am black. That right, like I have black skin, <laughs> but other than that. I played exactly like an Italian American guy, and I when I didn't read that till after I'd seen the movie, and it blew my mind because I was like, "Wow!" Because he totally does, yeah. And I didn't notice it while he I was definitely watching the movie. has that machismo. Uh, so those three are they're uh, union auto workers, and uh, they're they're uh, they're all kind of dealing with um, financial pressures. We've got um, the Yafet Koto character is sort of like he's been in prison before so he's got a a criminal history Mm -hmm. and he's got he's in debt for a loan shark we've got um uh the uh richard Pryor character who is um uh is is he's he's claimed way too many children so now he's in debt (laughs) he doubled the amount of children but but he only did that in the first place because he couldn't afford to to support his family in the first place right? right But I, I think I think it's interesting because we all sort of have these different pressures that are that are pressing these people financially, and and, and they, these pressures force them into trying to take shortcuts, which make their situations even worse. Which that literally describes tens of millions of people in Absolutely. the United States, right? hundreds of millions maybe. And then you have the Harvey Keitel character who also he has a second job. His uh, daughter needs uh, braces, so he's trying to get. Uh, money for that. So they all need money. They're all, um, maybe not Yafet Koto's character, but the other two are like pro-union guys that are like very, there's an early scene where uh, a um, federal agent comes in and pretends he's like a professor to try to get them to talk about the union. And they're like very like, no, you know, we're pro-union everything about that. They're like, Uh, go away, narc. Right, go away. Uh, These guys go to the bars and hang out, the union bar afterwards. And they decide, you know, after a night of partying and kind of things being rough, I mean, work is – this movie does a really good job of, like, showing factory life. And, and how, how much it sucks to have a boss. Right. Right. And also, like, you know, just that grind that they have, the clock mm-hmm. in, you, to take a break, 
you know, if is like time to the second. If you yes. want to get, it's just you know everything is just like. Yeah. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm gonna butt in here because right. uh, it, it it it's perfect. It perfectly captures like the first act of this movie of all the tiny indignities of of work. So one, they're they're uh, the foreman just walking down the line, hassling guys, being racist, all, right. all this stuff. Like, and and you watch it, and you're and and I, you know, like this exact thing is happening at Tesla factories right now, like a sure. notoriously racist work environment. So you watch this, thinking like, well, this could never happen now. It absolutely does, and it's documented. Yeah, uh, and two. Just about like so, Richard Pryor gets up during a union meeting because he's mad that his locker is broken, and, right. and and I thought this was so brilliant because he's absolutely right because it's something that's so easy to dismiss, like oh, big deal, your locker's broken. He's like, the only way I can open it is if I stick my finger through the hole and twist it, which cuts my finger. Right, every day, and and, and just these tiny indignities that we have to deal with every day at work that for management or in this case like his union rep well in this case both i guess right management doesn't care. yeah it feels like this is more management than union rep but this is where i don't entirely understand the push and pull of all that but but, because here here's what's so brilliant about it the union rep doesn't want to work because work sucks (laughs) uh the management doesn't want to do anything about it because a it'll cost not much, but it'll cost money to fix it, and they don't want to work. They just want to keep pushing these guys through the mill because all they care about is the cars getting off, uh, getting get those through numbers, the line. Get those numbers up. So also, he had to spend uh, twenty dollars on pens to Jimmy open his lock, which is yes. probably like fifty bucks today. So like it's 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 so good because it's such a small thing, but you if you put yourself in his position, you totally get it. How it's just one small or maybe medium-sized indignity after another that all adds up to make working life miserable. I mean, every as we go through the summary, everything that ha- – like from a character motivation standpoint this movie, everything is written so well to be like, okay, I understand why that character did that thing. Yep. Um, so, all right, so they decide, you know what, I bet you there's there's, there's money in the, the union headquarters, there's a safe – there's t- barely any security there. Why don't we go take that cash? And at first they're like, no, it's the union. We're stealing against ourselves, essentially. We're not going to do it. But eventually, like, the dignities add up, and it's like, forget it. We're going to do this. Well, they each have this great moment about how their their personal lives are, like, kind of tipping over, and a stressful financial life is becoming an untenable one. So Harvey Cattell's daughter needs braces, and she's so embarrassed about it that she tries to make like her she own. She gives herself homemade braces, and her mouth becomes all bloody. Right, which, which is another great like sort of comment on on our immiserating healthcare system in this country. Right. Where basically he has to decide to well, do I go into debt with like a loan shark or something? Or do I tell my daughter she can't get braces? It's like, right. yeah. what What are we doing here? Um, so they decide to do it, and it goes. It goes how you expect. Yeah, it goes. It goes. It goes so as you expect. It, it, yeah, it, it would be like if the three of us, three of us, tried to rob a place. Right. And, and We'd it, probably do a is, fairly decent job for a while, but eventually we would screw up in a big way because we don't know this, what we're doing. And this yeah, is no one does. About. And this is what I was talking about when I said they're losers, and I don't mean that. Uh, to the movie's detriment like they're they're losers because society has decided they're losers society has put them at the bottom rung Mm -hmm. and they are left with 
like you said, they can go to a loan shark or something, or they can do this and they steal like, the money and just everything spirals. Uh, two of them are black. One of those mm-hmm. black guys is an ex-con. And uh, Harvey Keitel is already working two jobs. There's a right? moment early in the movie, uh, which is very good, where uh, Ed Begley Jr., who's like a noted character. Yeah, so actor. so great to see him. Right. This, right. It's so funny. And and super, super young. Yeah. Right? Great yeah. Hair. I would assume it's a wig, but if it isn't a wig, wow, great hair. And uh, Yafet Koto's character, they're kind of, he's telling a story about the, time, the first time he ended up getting thrown in jail. And, you know, the cop showed up and it was essentially a misunderstanding. And this Ed Begley guy, the, the character, you know, this young white guy who's just like all so naive. He's just like, why didn't you just explain to the cops what happened? And the <laughs> just way. Just a hayseed. <laughs> and the way that all three of them laugh at it, even Harvey Keitel, because Harvey tells like, you know, lived enough life with these guys to understand that's not how it works <laughs> this yeah. is there are inequalities that does not allow that to be like excuse me sir let me just explain to you about this <laughs> excuse me lily white blonde ed begley jr <laughs> um yeah so there's there's that great moment uh so they, they steal the money here's the thing there's only six hundred dollars it's just a petty cash envelope um which, just a, a ledger of misdeeds. Well, yeah, so that's the other thing. So they don't realize, they're so upset about that. And they see there's a ledger that essentially shows how the union has, like, mob ties. And they're, you know, they're, yeah, as you said, Duff, a ledger of misdeeds. And, if you've seen The Irishman, you know you know what we're talking about. Right. And, uh, and to make it even worse, when this becomes a news story... That the union claims that originally they said over ten thousand, and then it becomes over twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, was stolen. So you just have like another work right now. The union is just trying to get more money from the insurance <laughs> guys. Insurance money, company. money is just made up. It's right. imaginary. Yeah, so yeah. so they decide. These three guys said like, oh, well, we only have six hundred dollars. That doesn't co- fix any of our problems. What if we blackmail the union to get ten thousand dollars, and we won't like give out this thing and this is where all these sort of decisions happen and they're all heartbreaking in their own way yeah um uh yeah fat koto's character has absolutely the saddest one where he essentially and, and maybe you guys have is it management or the union that has him killed inside the I, it's both probably both? i'm sure yeah. that that they're in collusion they had to be because think of you know management had to tell the guy to block the exit to the paint room right the fork the forklift or whatever that was yep so they put him in the paint room and they have other workers you know block him in and he doesn't know this and then the paint comes out and he can't get out and he oh, just, just harrow, a harrowing scene. just one of the most upsetting deaths i've seen ever just yeah, just yeah. awful unforgettable yeah. um what a scene and uh he, he dies he dies and then um the uh, the Richard Pryor character, who's like from the very beginning, kind of been the you know the guy who had the most spark, I would say, like the most uh, vigor about the current situation and what he needs to do, just is beaten down by the union and takes the union job uh, to like because it's his best bet, it's his best personal bet he can make for his life and his family, and turns his back on his friends, and then. Um, you know, that kind of leaves a Harvey Keitel character who eventually realizes the only thing he can do is to um, is to contact the uh, the FBI guy that had been uh, earlier and cooperate with that 
and and even then he he resists that yeah almost to the end it isn't until he's almost killed by goons yep uh, that he finally relents and 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 the one thing we we skipped like the Efikoto character is just like one of the best friends in any movie ever the like when Harvey Keitel has like the, he he's at the bar or Yafikota's at the bar and he re- overhears like goons talking about how they're gonna go rough up Harvey Keitel's family at his house. Yep. And he like with this brilliant move like surreptitiously like calls his wife and says she needs him to go meet Harvey. It's not his. I, I shouldn't keep calling him Harvey. Yeah, uh, Jerry. 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 It's yeah, Jerry Smoke. Jerry Bartowski. Zeke. Great Polish Midwestern character. Yeah, Harvey Keitel uh, is Jerry. Richard Pryor is Zeke, and Yafikoto uh, uh, Kato is uh, Smokey. So and Smokey. Do, you, do you know how I knew this is a great movie? Is I usually have hard time remembering characters' names if I see it for the first time. Mm. But mm. I, uh, and another reason I thought this was a great movie. Like I just, you immediately feel it's this world is lived in, and you immediately know these guys. I mean, arguably, well, not the saddest, but but before it gets real rough, a, an incredibly sad moment in this movie is when the three friends realize they can't be friends anymore, mm-hmm. um, because yeah. they would be implicated as the guys who stole the money because they know they're looking for two black guys, one white guy, and it's like, well, I guess yeah. it's it. And they shake hands and they take off, and that to me, I'm just like, oh man, that is so brutal. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, yeah, and I, and I think it's an important point, and this goes back to Duff's point earlier about all what I we just told you is really like pretty rough and sad. But this movie, because it has it's lived in, because you buy this friendship, even the like family domestic scenes feel um, very real and genuine, and 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 um, it's not like there are laughs and enjoyment along the way. Mm-hmm. During this, much like work, I guess, right? Like there, there is those things that are not related to work, but the people we go through it together. That like, uh, I don't know. I just feel like the friendship of those three guys, even though, and we'll get to it in real life. This was not a good shoot. This is tough, <laughs> tough, tough in the uh, on the the production of this movie. But like in the movie, I really buy these three guys being good friends. Oh yeah, it's amazing immediately. Um, um wow it, it, it th- what a movie what a picture so uh this is uh Paul Schrader who uh you know we already talked a little bit about he was on a heater at this point in his career and now later on he's kind of on one o- again uh, only as a writer though until he got this opportunity yeah so this is yeah, his this debut is his, film yeah directing um obviously well, I should say obvious but he um the big stuff beforehand is taxi drivers the, the big one in 76. Uh, also, Obsession, which is a De Palma movie, which is fine. Um, yeah, I was. I've never seen it. Like, is so you say it's just fine? Yeah, it's. it's is is uh, it a is it a script issue, directing issue, or are these just these two guys just not quite got it yet? I would say both. I'd say all, is, all it, of the above. Uh, is it horny? It's not horny. In, well, yeah, yeah. Or is it not horny enough? Is that the issue? Well, <laughs> I mean, this is it's it's De Palma in his like. I love Hitchcock. This is my vertigo. Yeah. Um, written by Paul Schrader. It has some, like, a couple that memorable sounds, scenes. That but... sounds like it should work. but Yeah. Maybe it's worth checking out. It's not bad. I just don't think it's – it's not top-tier De Palma for sure. Okay. Um, and uh, so this is his first movie he wrote with his brother, which I don't know much about his brother. I guess we could just do it now. 
So his brother uh, dodged the draft. Okay. And went to Japan and taught there for a while. And then somehow got mixed up with the Yakuza. He'd like teach by day and then be running around with the Yakuza at night. Like how can, what is this family? Like Duff, I I know a little bit about like their Calvinist upbringing. But I feel like you're probably more ready to talk about it than I am. I mean, but these I, two men, what they they were forged in fire. Uh, and I will are, say, I I will say for longtime listeners, or if you're new to us, if you want to hear even more Schrader content, we did a while ago um, do a special episode on our Patreon in March of 2020 on autofocus. It was so good, but we hadn't we didn't like I I at that time I didn't know about his brother. I didn't. And either. the fact that his brother dodged the draft, which obviously good for him, and then went to Japan, fell in with the and, Japanese mob, <laughs> and then like he wrote some some like he wrote scripts for Japanese masterpiece films. Like it's just like where do these two guys come from? And they're just two dudes from Michigan. I mean, I I know the honestly, I wish more than anyone else probably is Paul Schrader wrote an autobiography. Maybe oh yeah. But he, him and his brother um, were both raised uh, strict Calvinist. And and this is in the 1900s that they were. <laughs> like, yeah. Which, um, how they many were Calvinists not, could there even have been in like the 50s or whenever they were They born were not allowed to see any movies. Like I, Schrader, Paul Schrader said like the, he didn't see a movie until he was like 17 years old. And he like went to college. I think he went to UCLA. And he started off, he has like a degree in seminary or theology or something like that. And then just like decide, like also got his master's in film, like, no, I'm going to make films instead. And just from there, like many of those 70s auteurs, just a lot of drugs and a lot of sex and a lot of crazy stories. Like one of my, the story that stands out to me is how he was uh, coked up in a hot tub and called his psychiatrist over and then played Russian roulette on himself. And then his psychiatrist took the gun. And uh, the story goes that 10 years later, Schrader kind of sobered up and he like, he sought out his psychiatrist. He's like, thanks man. You really, you really helped me out. He's like, uh, do you remember that night? And the psychiatrist is like, yeah, I keep that gun in my desk to remind me of why I do this. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Now he's uh now Paul Schrader loves to post on Facebook. Oh, he is extremely online. <laughs> his his posts it, it's just like two o'clock in the afternoon. It could just be about him being horny for Taylor Swift, <laughs> and then he like, loves look, Taylor Swift. And then like, three hours later, it could be such like this beautifully profound post about aging. Yeah, and it's just like God. The human mind just contains multitudes. Paul Schrader is the only person I actually believe when they say they're just asking questions. Because, <laughs> yeah, because he actually seems to learn things. <laughs> like he <laughs> he he just plays words with friends with people he met on Facebook, <laughs> and like talks to people, and then like one day he'll be like, "Whoa, I mean, isn't it kind of you know." Uh, noble if a guy has a hot secretary and doesn't like assault her or something and then people will call him out and he's like I'm sorry I guess I was wrong and it's like <laughs> it, it, it's it, 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 I, I just I can't wrap my hand around that guy but it's really endearing like 
sometimes you'll read his posts and it's just this typical boomer nonsense and then you're like this is the guy who wrote taxi driver (laughs) (laughs) yeah it is it's it's pretty incredible Uh, i will say his posts have not been nearly as entertaining since he sobered up (laughs) uh but also the thing i love about him is kind of in the spirit of like pierre bogdanovich or orson welles just does not care just runs his mouth like he'll like he'll come back and he's like yeah focus features got mad i was talking so much crap about stuff before the coward counter oscar uh campaign so i laid off but i'm back now (laughs) yeah so he and and the other thing i would say is that this man like legitimately suffers for his art so i i'm always fascinated by one of my favorite kinds of stories is a in a creative environment, one person pulling a gun on another person. <laughs> uh, my favorite one here uh, up to this point is it with was... Gobert Arenas? Is it the Ramones with <laughs> the Phil Spector? Yeah. So Phil Spector, the Ramones were were like so annoyed leaving a session uh, that it is so funny that the Ramones had an album produced by Phil Spector. But although that album has some good tunes on it, I will say. Um, they were just like going to leave the studio and they had to walk up the stairs to get out and Phil Spector just stood at the top of the stairs and pointed a gun at them. That's Great work sp- ethic. Hilarious. So um, at, in, in during the filming of this and everyone involved seemed to have gotten really pissed off at Richard Pryor, which I, and I can't imagine. I would imagine he must have been such a pain in the ass to work with. I mean, a, a big part time. of it is he just like he was high impo- all the time. He was high like, all the time, and he would improvise all the time. And then he would get upset when he had to do more than three takes. And like, I can and imagine he if pulled you're an a actor, gun on the director, and he said, "If you make me do more than three takes, I will kill you." <laughs> while he's pointing a gun at Paul Schrader. Listen, we've all seen improv, and now imagine improv on cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> Yet yeah. somehow. I think Richard Pryor's performance in this movie is maybe the best out of all of these guys. And he is paired up with two heavy hitters. Uh, yeah. Also, I was reading my favorite scene in this movie um, is the last scene they shot when these three guys were like tired of each other at that point. Mm-hmm. And it's a scene where it's after the party and it's when they're sitting on the couch. Okay. And they're just kind of like... scene. It's a great scene. It's a great scene because of their performances. Also, like, behind them is a billboard. Uh, I don't know what it's selling. Something. And that's, like, another thing in this movie. And and just in the whole work sucks thing is, like, these people, these guys work so hard to build something that we're just going to sell just so they can try to make enough money to buy more things that they think they need to buy. You yeah. know, like that's a that's an early part where uh, Zeke is Richard Pryor's character is like talking about like I bought that TV it costs so much we're watching it twenty four seven like that costs so much for my family to have like we're not turning it off and there's just like along with you know work sucks also just this like the consumerism that just pushes everything forward they're constantly showing the ticker for Goodyear right. for yep. the how many cars have been built. And it's really, it's literally just reducing like human lives and capital into numbers ticking upward. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that was the last scene they shot. So I mean, yeah, they were all they were done with each other. I mean, it was, it was, they are just so tired of. Uh, I mean, and I think you know, listen, we've talked about Paul Schrader a little bit. I think he said in an interview that he told all three of them that they were going to be the leads, and no one's, you know, then that that caused issues because it's like, well, wait a minute. Mm. 
yeah. none of us are really the leads here. Yeah. Uh, so, so this man almost quit the film industry during during the filming of this movie, and fortunately for all of us, he kept going. And now, in his newest movie, which is not yet released, he suffered a detached retina, Ooh. and he kept posting pictures of himself with an eye patch on, and he delayed surgery on his detached retina. Because he uh, in, his, in a post, he said, if, if I would have stopped filming, the movie almost assuredly would have fallen apart. Like, we just didn't have the support. The insurance company wouldn't have covered it. So I just delayed the surgery so we could get the movie done. But by delaying that surgery, like, the longer you wait to have it, the less yeah. likely they are to be able to save your eye. So I I haven't I don't have Facebook, so I rely on the Twitter account that reposts his tweets, so I don't... <laughs> I, I repost his Facebook posts, so I don't know. I I haven't seen one pop up, but maybe I've missed it. I don't know if he's had the surgery. I don't know if it's been successful. I haven't seen anything on that. He still has the eye patch. Okay, Boy. so <laughs> I like, thought he was. I thought he was just leaning into that John Ford thing. No, like so, like he <laughs> delayed surgery on a detached retina because he knew if he got it and had to take time away from from shooting, the movie would probably fall apart. So he might lose one of his eyes in order to keep that movie. And, like, I sort of get it. Well, that this does defy the work sucks ethic because he should just be like, screw that. Like, this is just a job. <laughs> I'm going to save my eye. But on the other hand, he's also super old. Yeah. So he I might mean, just be like, he, dude, He's lived whatever. the life of 20 people. Too. He's probably, he wakes up every morning and is like, how? Because he's got to be almost 80 now. He's 75. Yeah. 75. So he's yeah. he's probably already like with all the and cocaine I've Those done. are a hard 75 years though. Yeah, those Yes. Uh, like and, the, and the 1970s like, I, like that put 30 years on. And I, you know, we're all we're God, I can't believe I'm saying this. We're like middle-aged guys, so we still have, you know, a couple decades ahead of us at least, I hope. Um but I would imagine at the age of 75 if if like you're really motivated by making art you're just like I believe in this film that I'm making. I want to make sure it gets done because it might be the last one I get to do. So what? And, is and his, in his position, his, it legitimately might be the last one. Do you want to know this movie that's coming out? That's the um, Gardner or something. Gardner. The yeah, it's, Gardner. I know it's set in New Orleans, which sounds like an intriguing setting for. A, I haven't a seen movie. the Card Counter. I've heard varying things about it, but the thing about Paul Schrader is even like Bad Schrader is it is unique. It is. It is almost always wild. Also, I, I think as we talk about this crazy guy, I think it's also like this dude's been married since 1983. That's wild. He, it is this, <laughs> yeah. there's two Schrader modes. There is just like repressed uh, sexuality that comes out in super horny ways. And then there is just this like super cynicism about the world and just like, how like the crushing responsibility of life and sometimes those mix and sometimes they don't he's right. just a wild dude uh i think this is well i mean tax driver i guess is the best thing he did but like this is up there this is great uh this movie is this is this is great i i think for uh first reformed is great um yeah. I'll, i mean didn't he go write raging bull or am i making that up uh, oh, and he also wrote The Last Temptation of Christ, which I will stand for. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. All his and he wrote, and, and, and actually, here's the awesome thing is uh, we are tentatively planning on, actually, I, I would say I'm going to demand it. We're going to do Bringing Out the Dead for this season. He wrote that too. 
Oh yeah. So we are we're gonna get more Schrader later, but we'll try to talk about him less then. <laughs> well, let's let's uh, let's. Is there anything you guys want to say about um, uh, more about this message? This movie. I think there's a lot. I mean, we talked about union corruption. I think the yeah. the racism part is also worth like digging into and how this movie handles it in 1978. Which like here we are in 2022, and it all feels. As you said earlier, Joe, like realistic and still exists. Maybe not, maybe not as overt, but not much different. Well, here's the difference: is like now it would be even worse because as like so. So I'm in a union, and I I think this really captures it well because these guys are are super frustrated with their union, and they. Like like you mentioned earlier, there's that great scene where Richard Pryor goes after like their um, go, go, goes after the guy. From, that's the dad from there's, um, there's the dad from Wonder Years, right? Now, isn't it the the dad from Son in Law? But so it isn't the dad from Wonder Years. Okay, so I, I don't mix think up so. my sitcom. But they guys. they are similar type guys. Like, okay, they're um, they're, he- they're an old an old an, yeah, an old an old white dude in the union office. Yeah. So so. They, they, it, it perfectly cap, perfectly captures that these guys understand that their their local is screwing them and it's corrupt because I mean again it's a human organization and anytime you have a human organization of any kind it's going to be flawed right mm-hmm. but they also understand if they did not have that union their lives would be even worse mm-hmm. and and that is sort of the dynamic of being in a union is that there's going to be things about it that frustrate you. It, it, it is a hierarchy. Uh, there's bureaucracy to deal with, and there's frustrating elements of it, and you and you often feel like they're not doing enough for you, but you also know that anyone outside of that union that wants to try to tear it apart or bring it down, you know is an enemy force, and you know that without that union, your life will be significantly worse if you're it, in one. It does seem like a part of this with the, the union stuff is like the union has these wins that they've had, right, with wage increases they struck or the fact that, um, you know, uh, Zeke and Smokey are, are even able to work there as black men. Like that was like a win um, mm-hmm. But it seems like those wins get propped up. So you'd be like, yeah, well, I mean, I appreciate you did that. <laughs> But there's still things I need, and the union in this situation is like, yeah. Well, what about that thing we did a couple years ago? Yeah. So, so like, you're still dealing with people, right? And and those people who are like working for the union full time, those are people that were like, that's their job. And like, there's things that were like, yeah, they're going to be motivated and they're going to do something about it. And then there's also things that they're going to be kind of lackadaisical about. And that's what's so interesting to look at with this film as a time capsule because it's an era where those unions are are still in the late 70s it's waning and and then sort of the Reagan era will Reagan era and followed by Clinton who also couldn't care less about unions either and the Democratic Party in the 90s couldn't care less about unions either. Like as we sort of move towards that era uh, where the Republican Party moves right and the Democratic Party embraces neoliberalism, like the unions just lost so much power after this. And this is like that last moment where they they felt powerful enough where they could still feel complacent. And that's what's so fascinating about this movie is it's this really is this last moment 
where you and I'm not saying that unions aren't corrupt now. I mean, it, again, it's it's people, right? It's human beings in an organization. So of course, I'm sure there's unions that have problems, and and I have frustration with not so much my local but my national union for sure. But again, take it away. I would be making so much less money than I would. Sure. I mean, if take, I didn't have take it away and you work seven days a week. And, yeah. it, you know. It, it, so it's so interesting to, it, it, as a time capsule because, like, th- this is it. Like, a couple, like, two, five to ten years after this, like, even at this point, union membership just starts plummeting and it at an exponential rate. And, and thinking about when this movie came out in 1978 versus now, like the union membership in this country, it's a fraction of it was oh, yeah. of what it was when this movie came out. So, so going into like when I first saw this movie, I was kind of like hesitant or not hesitant. Like I'll watch anything, but it's like, man, I, I knew this was pretty like cynical about unions. But I, I I don't think that you could watch this movie and walk away thinking I don't want to be in a union now. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing is like early on, these guys are like. These are proud union men. Again, no matter how mad you are at your union, like if, if some nerd walks in trying to get you to, to talk crap about them that you don't know, you're you're never going to put up with that. Right. The only reason Harvey Keitel ever ends up cooperating with them is because he has no choice. Right. Yeah. 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 It's and either I'll be dead or I cooperate with them. Or you join them, which Richard Pryor did. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, it's, and, it's... and that scene, like, that, I really think that's one of the best American film scenes of all time, where where Harvey Keitel questions him, like, how could you just sell out to the union? You take this cushy job oh, yeah, just porch. so you keep quiet. Yeah. And he's like, well, that's, that, that's a white man talking. Right. Yeah. Like, you, you're going to get more chances. I won't. Yeah. And I yeah, was like, because when Harvey Keitel said that line, I was like, oh, hell yeah. And then Richard Pryor's line back to him, I was like, shh. Damn, dude. Yeah, I mean, every character's decision makes sense for that character. You, again, like you both, at one point, agree and then later disagree with a decision they made, because at one, you know, initially you're like, oh, come on, dummies, why are you robbing this safe? But then, you know, like Harvey Keitel's daughter comes home with a bleeding mouth because she tried to make her own braces. Like, and, how, yeah. how do you, you know, like how do you, as a father? Like see that, and just not do whatever it would take. Yep, and and you know the um, Richard Pryor. I mean, he owes I think two grand, which I was like, I think I put in the old inflation ca- calculator. It's over nine thousand now. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money that he had to like pay back. Mm-hmm. And you know, yeah, they made decisions to put themselves in those situations, but like that. That doesn't matter. Like, there's, <laughs> you still understand why they, you know. Uh, that's that's the other thing that makes me mad. Like, like people will talk about working class people or or people in poverty. It's like, well, uh, you know, you made dumb decisions, and now you have to pay the consequences right. for it. Hey, have you ever done something dumb? Yeah, I have. Yeah, like all of us have. Right. But some of us are in a privileged enough position where we can make mistakes and we can bounce back from them not everybody is and and these families aren't in that position and a lot and most families in our country aren't no correct um do we want to tell some stories from work to kind of live it to to make things a little less sad yeah let's do it 
Is there anything else about uh, blue collar we want to talk about? Midnight Boys approved, obviously. Oh, th- this Mid- was this uh, is one of our this most possibly maybe, right? the Boys. most Midnight Boys approved. Movie. Yeah, put it on the Midnight Boys uh, uh, Mount Rushmore so far. Yeah, uh, of any movie we've talked about, which is like not nothing. I mean, we've this is we've done a lot of movies. We have. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know the number, but I would assume. We have done, God, probably close to 100 movies if we add yeah, in. Yeah, I was going to say, it's got to be dozens, well over 50. Yeah, so this is our 80th movie on the main feed, yeah. uh, our 80th like episode, and I think we have like well over 20 on Patreon. So, a lot. Uh, okay, all right, so two tales. Okay, so I don't know anything about Factory Life, but you know who does? My father. And um, he used to work, so he, my dad, uh, as any listener, long-time listener knows, well much older than I am by a lot, big age gap. And uh, after he came back from World War II, he worked in a paper it's factory. It's so, so wild to me, man. I know. He worked in a paper factory. And that's I don't a very, know. That's a very northern Wisconsin place to work. Man. It was, but he wouldn't have been, I guess that probably would have been, I don't know if he was in northern Wisconsin. I'm guessing he so would have been. So would you call it a mill? Yeah, paper yeah, mill. mill. But, but still, it, but it is a northern Wisconsin. Like, oh, that's, definitely. Yeah. Um, I, and I don't know the details on a lot of this. This is the story I was told. Maybe maybe there was something with a mob, and I don't know the real story. Who knows? Could be. Uh, the story I've always been told is he was – maybe it was a newspaper. I have no idea. He was taking something out of some sort of feeder on one part of the factory while someone else on the other end didn't know that and turned it on. And it sucked his arm in and cut his hand off. That's how my dad lost his right hand. Oh, man. Uh, so my dad always was uh, one-handed. He had a bar called Nub's Pub. Like, like Emperor Hirohito couldn't take your dad's hands, but, <laughs> <Yeah. he came. laughs> but he got, but the he got back could. home. The but sharks, just, if his if his ship sank, couldn't have taken it. Right. But yeah. yeah. But he gets home, and good old American capitalism takes it. So um, and like honestly, in a civilized country, if you're working in a factory and through no fault of your own, your hand gets taken. In my opinion. <laughs> That's a free pass. Like you just get social security. You, you should not have to work. Yeah. No, because that that's that's a, that's a huge L. That wasn't your fault. Like a civilized society, would be like, dude, it's fine. So you, you served our country. Now you lost your hand. We're yeah, gonna... yeah. He, he fought against the imperial Japanese <laughs> at literally at Iwo Jima. Right. Then he in went like... back to the United States and worked in a paper mill. Lost his hand, and they're still like, sorry, sorry, dude, you got to keep working. <laughs> Yeah. Otherwise, you won't get insurance. <laughs> Unbelievable. So, Awful country. So here's 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 a better story. And I'm going to shout out uh, one of our listeners and uh, our li- one of our listeners who uh, ever, all our listeners just know as our wealthy benefactor who has pay- paid for uh, uh, quite a few uh, Patreon episodes or episodes at, uh, as a patron. And um, him and I used to work together. And uh, this is a story where, like, you know, as the stories go, you, you know, I'm you're really not sh- excited to hear this story. You're, you're I not know who sure you're talking about, and I, this is going to be good. You're not sure if you were there or not. In my head, I was there for this. I, I confirmed with him. He, I think I was as well. But there's a part in this movie in Blue Collar where there's this poor guy, this poor guy who just wants to take a break and grab a soda. All oh yeah, wants- dude. <laughs> Uh, it, and that, that's what this movie does so well. The tiny indignities of work, like the like the big ones and the little ones. Yep. 
I would be so mad if I was that guy. It's, ma- it's macroaggressions. And, and not only that, or but he has to like pay for it too, right? Like that's the other thing is I'm like, you have to like go and put money into this thing. All right. So uh, there's in the movie, he goes and it never works. It never has like it takes his money, doesn't give him his drink and all this stuff. And he he's he's so mad about it. And finally, he just gets a forklift and just drives through it and wrecks it. And it's just incredible. Bless that moment. man. <laughs> what a yeah. king. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, our wealthy benefactor, uh, when I worked with him, uh, he was newer, uh, and he, we were, you know, in like the break room and there was a soda machine there and he was pretty new and it was like, maybe he'd been there for a few weeks and he went in there and he put his quarter in to get like a Mountain Dew or whatever. And, um, little Baja Blast picked me up. No Mountain Dew showed up and he just goes, he just goes, what idiot is in charge of this machine and can't <laughs> fill it? Like, he just rants, like, to us, to anyone in the room. And while he finishes this rant, there's this guy who was, like, the building maintenance guy, but he didn't know this. He gets up, he just throws his lunch on the table, storms <laughs> out, and quit the job. Like That rocks. <laughs> that, like, that's... Like, we... I, I think the most rev- like if we're really going to get like a worker field revolution, we need to start building statues for people who quit in awesome ways for awesome reasons. <laughs> and that's one right there. You imagine why did you quit? I was just down there enjoying my lunch. And then <laughs> this guy came in there and ranted about how there wasn't Mountain Dew for him. Hey man, like war <laughs> wars have been started over less. <laughs> Yeah, like at least that was true that there was no Mountain Dew. Right. Like we literally started a war twenty years ago about something that was totally made up. Oh, but in my head, it's one of those memories of him just yelling, "What idiot can't fill this?" And then the other guy just throwing his like lunch on the table and storming away. And the next day, they're being like an all staff female. That's like this guy is no longer employed. Here. God bless. God bless that, that rules. man. God. He's, mad, he's mad as hell. And because not because take it his because because work sucks <laughs> and like God like there's a there's a straw that breaks your back where you're just like that's it. <laughs> so I I feel like that's uh, a good transition to my story. Uh, and uh, I, I'm gonna hopefully we can do this as a segment. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk, call it uh, Duff's temping tales. Okay, oh boy. Yeah. Um, because. Uh, directly after college, uh, and Rob was in this situation for a while. I was in a situation longer. Uh, uh, love the old UW Madison, uh, liberal arts degree, uh, was not exactly a job guarantee or not a great job guarantee. No. In 2005. Nope. Uh, so, but here's the good news. It would get worse a few years. Later. Right. That's the thing. It was, it was hard <laughs> then it was hard yes. then and it would get even worse. Like, uh, our issue is we would, our issue was like the age old one, right? Where you apply places and you're like, Oh, I see you don't have any experience. And you're like, yep. That's, yeah. I would like to accrue some here. Sir. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so from 2000, like late 2005 to just like, very beginning of 2008 uh i lived the gig economy before that was a term Mm -hmm. uh mainly through temping uh whatever i could find on craigslist uh (laughs) it you're you're on you're on that grind set bro 
I I hustled, man. Yeah. Um, but not just, in a lucrative way. No. Um, yeah, the you, most, you could the, not have built an Instagram. Is this is this uh, why Randolph is this why Duff you still love doing surveys and getting that cash? I mean, that's just because it's easy. I mean, did, but, but is that where that that like built into? Yeah, well, I I think it is. I no, I'm not even gonna let Duff answer. He, you're like a Great Depression survivor, <laughs> and like you cannot stop grinding. <laughs> you can't stop grifting on the margins, like looking for a dollar here and there, part because it, you're traumatized from part it. Part of man. it is because. I lived a, we lived a very middle class life, but, uh, and thankfully my parents kind of hid when there were kind of tough times. Like there was a time where my dad like might've lost his job because he was tangentially related in, to construction in the eighties. He was a project manager and they kind of hid that from me, but like, so, wait, up, wait, you said might've, you don't even know if he did or not. He didn't. No, he did not lose his job. It was oh, like, oh, it was just it was it was tenuous. It was, it was a possibility. Okay, okay, okay. I, um, I see what you mean. So, but there was just a lot of things like, uh, I mean, I've brought this up. How like my mom be like, yeah, I saw this thing about how you can do ho- uh, haircuts at home with this thing that you buy and you hook it up to the vacuum. <laughs> and it saves the a lot. suck cut. It's well, this certainly does Flo-Bee. suck. It's called a floby. <laughs> uh, or just you know like oh. Like, my mom was very big into couponing. Yeah. Uh, so, I, yeah, I do feel like I have that, like, that hustle mentality. Um, but just for a good two-plus years, just a string of humiliating, awful temp jobs and, you know, one or two days. Like, never, like, manual labor, but it's just, like, data entry and just stuff like that. Uh, one of my all-time favorite Rob quote is, "I didn't go to college to stand at work." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I was not surprised at what this was because I knew what it was. But I went in, and the job was, uh, you were refurbishing old office phones for resale. Okay. So what you and so I'm like, oh, it's probably something like twelve dollars an hour in two thousand five. I'm just like, whatever just do it to get some cash and so i go in and like i went into this like warehouse in the burb somewhere and uh it wasn't so much as an, an interview it was a test like they gave me a phone and they gave me like a <laughs> it was like a pin or some type of tool and it's like all right I want is this to like a that. cisco phone like a smartphone or is yeah, this just like yeah a, no okay. it's an office not not a smartphone this is pre-smartphone all right so it's just maybe. like a regular phone yeah this, this is it. a dial tone phone got it okay because they are going to resell them. Uh, so she like, she's like, I'm going to give you like 10 minutes and just clean the, the junk out of this phone's crevices. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, and so, and I, again, remember, this is just the interview. Like they're, they're trying me out. And so like, I take this pin and I go through like all the, you know, all, where all the plastic molding meets. And I'm like, all right, I can get this goddamn phone cleaned out. And, and the interviewer was like this middle-aged woman. And so I'm like, all right, here's, here's this office phone. And she starts to like, look at it and it's like, oh, this isn't, this isn't that great and blah, blah, blah. And here's, and I, I swear to God, and you guys know me, you can vouch for this. <laughs> I literally stood up and I said, I don't need this that badly. And I did not look back <laughs> and I walked out. God bless you for that. That's uh... good incredible um, i did not i did not need to be lectured by some lady about i'm not cleaning this the 
l- lint out of a phone that you're <laughs> yeah, going to resell to someone. That's humiliating, man. Uh, yeah, that doesn't uh, seem like a growth business either, I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, working in Wisconsin, which after Act 10, like, you know, public unions, like, obviously were a- a- assaulted by uh, Scott Walker and his, like, mm-hmm. insane, like, right-wing brigade, which... It's basically ensconced in power because we don't we live in like a managed democracy in Wisconsin. Yeah, we powerless. You got that Foxconn though, baby. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. Uh, and 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 oddly, like even though we got a Democratic governor with the new census, our new maps are even worse because uh, Supreme the, Court, baby. Yeah, the the real like like loony bin is is in our court system your guys but. supreme court is basically a gun club that just kind of got appointed yeah, to- the, the only like like saving grace of it is instead of uh, like the absolutely insane system with our u.s supreme court where they just get a lifetime appointment uh we could elect someone new i think either next year or the year after right and, and, and flip it but and that's not gerrymandered. So that's like that and the governor are the only two Yeah, we, we, we actually have been doing pretty well with statewide races. Right. But anyways, my point is, and and now it's become a right-to-work state. So like even any union, um, like you could just be like, I'm, I'm not going to be in the union. But Act 10 made made the case with, with uh, public unions where you could just be like, not going to be in it. And you could choose to do that. And I just have to, I have to collaborate with people that are just like, yeah, I'm just not going to pay dues. I'm not going to be in it. And I get all the stuff that the union fights for, but I don't pay my dues. I And I'd love to hear one of them argue how our work day would be easier and how our pay would be better and how our benefits would be better if there was no union. I'd love to hear one of them argue that with a straight face. Is there anything else you guys want to talk about with uh, Blue Collar or stories or anything else before we uh, tease next week's episode? Let's tease it, baby. Uh, We're going to do something next week a little different. We are going to continue on the work sucks. We're going to change topics a little bit, change um, what we're going to talk about with how work sucks. time for the women's movement. Time time for it. We're going to talk about 9 to 5, and we're bringing on a special guest because let's admit it. We're not the people to talk about what it's like being a woman in the workplace. We're no. not the ones. No, dude. So uh, we'll bring in on. Uh, we're bringing on Caroline. If you listen, let's bring to- on a broad. <laughs> Byob, bring your own broad. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and we did. <laughs> and we're gonna be talking about nine to five. Uh, just a quick scheduling note. I'm just going to say this, and we'll see if it's true or not. Generally, we are very good at once we package these little seasons up and we release them, and they come out every week. But listen, the little summer's treats. coming. The summer's coming, and uh, that's vacate time. Time to go on some trips with the fam. Things are going on. So listen, you know, if there's a week or two between episodes, relax. They'll be coming. I'll- also, you know, maybe this being America, maybe there'll be some riots and things get pushed back. Who knows? But what you should do is you should pay your dues and go to patreon.com slash absolutely. <laughs> you freeloaders. <laughs> like, we, I, I, I've, I watch an uh, almost two-hour movie. I probably have put in an hour and a half at least just thinking about stuff typing mm-hmm. up the agenda and reading things about it. Right. 
And we have been recording, as I say this, for a min- an hour and 16 minutes and 24 seconds. So we'll see how much gets cut and put on Patreon. <laughs> yeah, pay your dues. <laughs> pay your dues. Uh, and pay- then you can vote on what we're going to do for the rest of the season. Right. Because That's there, right. there's some movies where the Midnight Boys are not aligned. So we're going to throw a bunch of movies on there. Vote for the ones you want to hear, uh, hear us talk about and... We'll listen to. We genuinely will listen to that because I I know there's one movie that's a little bit divisive amongst the boys. But if it gets a lot of votes, oh yeah, that'll sway it. Uh, so Patreon.com/slash Midnight Boys for two dollars a month, you can have access to a new monthly episode uh, every month where you can listen to us talk about autofocus. Um, Dude, I I'll, I'll talk about autofocus. I mean, again. listen, Joe. We know you're a photo nut. You're a bit of a photo nut. <laughs> I'm a bit of a photo nut. Um. And uh, and then I think it's six dollars a month, and you can like have you can be voting in these polls and help decide uh, what we're going to talk about. So and as we've discussed, one vote goes a long right? way. Right? Yeah, there. Yeah, only about thirty percent of people actually vote who can. So you can do a lot. Um, so yeah, we're going to be back uh, with nine to five with a uh, bringing a guest on. You can go vote on the other stuff and you know what check out blue collar this movie is a uh, underrated what a, classic what a, what a picture what a picture. i'll say it again what a picture <laughs> <laughs>